Church, can I invite you to stand now as we read God's Word together this morning? We're going to be in Ezekiel 47, our final touch point in our series in Ezekiel, at least for now. We're going to be reading 47, 1 through 12 together. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Next he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate that faced east. There the water was trickling from the south side. And as the man went out east with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a third of a mile and led me through the water. It came up to my ankles. Then he measured off a third of a mile and led me through the water and it came up to my knees. He measured off another third of a mile and led me through the water and it came up to my waist. And again, the measured, then again he measured off a third of a mile and it was a river that I could not cross on foot for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be crossed on foot. He asked me, do you see this, son of man? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. And when he had returned, he saw a very large number of trees among the sides of the riverbank. He said to me, this water flows out to the eastern region and goes down to, the, to Araba, or Araba, excuse me. And when it enters the sea, the sea of the foul water, the water of the sea becomes fresh. And every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows. And there will be a huge number of fish because this water goes there. And since the water will become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi uh, of Engelion. And these will become places where nets are spread out to, try, to, dry, um, to dry. And their fish will, will consist of many different kinds like this fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Yet its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be left for salt. All kinds of trees providing food will grow up from on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. Each month they will bear fresh fruit because the water comes from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be used for eating and their leaves for healing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. You know, I was thinking this week how often it has been a reality in my life where I may have had a perspective about something, and then when I had a lived experience with whatever that something is, that that lived experience was vastly different than the perspective that I had going into it. You ever been in a moment like that where you've seen things, things just as you may have been taught a certain perspective about something, and then as you get older, you go, that's not, does not correspond to reality at all. Um, I'm, I'm sure we've all been in these moments, you know. Like for me, I grew up in Roanoke, or outside of Roanoke, Virginia. For me, I lived in a little small town called Goodview, Montvale, these little small, really small towns, and I thought Roanoke was the big city. And Roanoke's smaller than Murfreesboro, by the way. And, uh, and, and we would go, and I would think that was the big city. And I, and I knew that there were big cities, right? I knew, like, New York, L.A. We knew that those were, like, different. Um, Chicago, Atlanta, whatever. But I always thought Roanoke was, you know, comparable to all the other big cities out there. 
And I realized as I moved about as an adult, moving from Knoxville, which is a little bit larger city, then moved to Louisville for seminary, then moved to Raleigh after seminary, and then moved here to Nashville, like how different the world is when you start to see things for as you really were. And how now as I go back to Roanoke and visit family, how much different Roanoke feels to me than it did when I was a child. Sometimes, another example of this might be when you have those drawings that our children come to us with, right? And they have drawn their perspective of some item, whether it's a house or their family or their dog, and you're like, what is this? And you don't know what this is, but you're trying to be kind. By the way, kids, keep drawing. It's okay. Keep trying. I'm a, I, love, I, was, I loved art as a kid, but there were so many things that I learned about art as I went over. But sometimes that's just what it is. Their perspective about whatever that thing is from their mind, they're trying to encapsulate in their ability to draw, but yet as they mature, guarantee that that, would, that picture will develop, it will mature, it will change. Or if you are a son of the South, particularly here of Tennessee, and you are a football fan, which I don't know how many of us are here are, you might have found recently that our neighbor to the South, Alabama, and their head coach, Nick Saban, apparently struggles with a warped perspective on things. Um, recently, he voted in his final coaching poll for the football season of 2022 that Alabama was the number two team in the country as of last fall, and he ranked Tennessee as number six. So that's rich. Um, sorry, if you're not a football fan, you'll go do your own research. But, but the point is, uh, sorry, I'm a little bitter. But, um, but sometimes we do have perspectives about things, but as lived experience comes in, Things just change, or as reality changes, information changes. How often do we speak of heaven and the things of heaven in ways that don't correspond to the reality of heaven? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Like people, you see this a lot at funerals. I've done a number of funerals in my life, and usually there will be these colloquial things that we'll say about the person who's passed on or something about their life, and we usually try to describe it with the best knowledge we have, but, but when you start to compare that to Scripture, you're like, man, that's really way off. Let me give you a couple examples. Like when a loved one dies, how often have they been described, and maybe you've been guilty of this, I've probably been guilty of this, that they've earned their what? Angel's wings. That doesn't correspond to the Bible, Angels and humans are not the same. Angels are not made in the image of God. The Bible tells us that angels long for what you and I have and experience in the gospel. Or another one might be, perhaps you've lost someone who, who, who's the last part of their life. By the way, pray for, um, for Lance and Deborah, who are in Louisiana or in process there. His, they're expecting his mother to pass any time and they're preparing for that but she's been struggling with a long-term dementia. Perhaps you've been in a situation where you saw someone die in a prolonged way, and maybe the statement that either came to your heart and to your mind or someone else said it around you is this, well, they're finally freed from this body. Have you heard that one before? And in the sentiment, like we understand the sentiment, right? Because this broken body of death, yes, we understand that, but... The reality is the Bible doesn't describe heaven as some disembodied state like we see a lot of times in movies, right? It's not, you know, um, some kind of like picture of white space with no definition and, and Harry Potter's meeting with Dumbledore, right? Like that's, that's not happening. That's not heaven. That's not what's, what Scripture describes heaven. It actually describes us 
in as this, as if our, even though we will be a temporary time in an intermediate state where our bodies will be separated from our souls, that we will be merged one day with resurrected bodies. And that's what eternity is, is us having new bodies in a resurrected state with our souls that will live for eternity. The, the idea of a disembodied reality of heaven is really Gnostic in its basic nature. That the body and matter is fundamentally evil and our souls need to be escaped from these kinds of things. And you see this in culture everywhere. And no wonder they've come up with ideas about heaven in such manners. Or here's one last one. How many times do we describe heaven as a space, as I've already said, of clouds and nothing with bright definitionless kind of space? Again, it's the Dumbledore and the, and the, and the Harry Potter meet up after he apparently dies from Voldemort killing him or whatever that is. I'm not a big Harry Potter fan, but I know enough to be dangerous, right? Um, or we think a choir, like heaven's just a choir recital. Like that's all heaven's going to be. No, the Bible describes the new heavens and earth as a new creation a new Eden, a new city, bustling with life, bustling with activity. And so as we come to this text in these last two chapters, particularly we're going to look at 47 more than 48 this morning, Ezekiel gives us a vision of the future and our final home that awaits God's people. And in it, he challenges our notions. He, he, he challenges our superstitions. He challenges our common and, frankly, fantasy-driven notions of heaven that often get concocted in the human mind and heart, do they not, does he not? And so here's the main idea this morning. The final word of Ezekiel, and this is the final word. This is what Ezekiel has lost through, through 48, 47, 48 chapters. This is where Ezekiel wanted to get to. These last 40 through 48, right, this last seven or eight chapters, like this is where Ezekiel has been trying to get to, and through all the judgment, through all the darkness, here's his final word. He invites us to hope in a promised paradise that guarantees a new and better Eden out of which flows living water that nourishes all of creation for eternity. I'll say that again. The final word of Ezekiel invites us to hope in a promised paradise that guarantees a new and better Eden out of which flows living water, nourishing all of creation forever and forever and forever. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to overview here just for a moment of what we see here in 47 48. 48, 47 and 48 could be divided into um, two parts. The life-giving water, which we just read, that flow from God's presence in the temple. And then from there, th verse 13, all the way through the end of 48, that we see the division of the land and the gates and the access of God and all those kinds of things, okay? Now, we've, these final chapters of Ezekiel illustrate for us a picture of what heaven will be like in that future state. It, it is pointing forward. We said this a few weeks ago on New Year's Day, that this is what it is. It's, if, if there's a great text to be studying in these, this, this new day is to remind ourselves that we're looking at heavenly things, future things, eternal things. And I mentioned last week that these chapters, and again, 40 through 48, paint a picture for us. I use the word impressionistic picture, but a, a painting a picture of the, uh, for the exiles um, the home that the exiles are longing for, what they're waiting for. Now, I want to make sure I clear something up because I had several conversations afterwards. When we say impressionistic painting, we're not saying that what we're seeing here is fantasy or it's not real. What we're saying is, far from it, that this vision serves to capture our affections with imagery and symbol that drives us beyond our own ability to conceive of heaven and reveal the realities that we simply can't conceive of on our own. Does that make sense? So, Think about when we 
back in chapter 1 and 2, and we saw this great glory of God being revealed to Ezekiel, and we see this big platform with all the pillars of the platform. Do we really think that's what God looks like? No, of course not, but it's something that God's using this to capture Ezekiel's heart, to help Ezekiel see the majesty of God. It's meant to bring him and everyone who hears this vision to the end of themselves and the end of ourselves and our conceptions of who we think God is. Why would God do anything different when we conceive of heaven? But he gives us this wonderful picture here, and he uses the temple, he uses Jerusalem, very common picture things that the Israelites would have known themselves. But he says, yes, but way more than you can conceive. Way bigger. I mean, again, look, we looked at last week, the scale of the temple as it was measured off was vastly larger than what was ever realized in brick or mortar on this, on this earth. Vastly more. And so remember what we're trying to get at as we're thinking about this idea of heaven. What is portrayed here is very different than what Israel or what Jerusalem would have thought. I'm sorry, what Israel would have thought about Jerusalem or what they would have thought about or known of in the temple in their own history. The temple and the city of Jerusalem are greater than themselves in God's redemptive economy. Like they point to something bigger than themselves, and that's why it is. That's why we talk about this idea of types and shadows. When you understand it correctly in the scriptures, um, we understand that these things are not, these are gifts from God in the Bible to show us greater things. That's, what, that's why our predecessors, our church fathers, have always understood this throughout church history. And so you have these two parts here. Again, as I mentioned here, let me just quickly say, 47, 1 through 12 is this river of life, which is what we're going to devote most of our attention to this morning. Actually, all of our attention to. And then from there is this division of land that's given to all of God's people. And what you're seeing in this whole picture, if we were to read the whole thing out, is this river goes out, it's nourishing everything, and as it gets out, and further and further, as you notice in the passage, the river gets more wild, more rambunctious, more powerful. And when it's going out into all the surrounding areas, what is it doing? It's creating life. It's creating real life. And all of God's people who are surrounding around the city, the sanctuary there where God's presence is, are teeming with life and vitality in a way that they have never known in human history. And they then are a blessing to the rest of the creation, which is what Genesis tells us we're supposed to do in the first place. Okay, so that's like a, a short synthesis of what we get here in 47 through 48. But we're going to devote most of our time, as I've said, to this living water that flow from God's presence in the temple. And I just want to look at a, a lot of scripture here. And so you might want to jot some of these scriptures down. They're not in your text, but just some things, some, some points there, and you can go back and read them on your own. But certainly when we see this passage that we read a few minutes ago of this river, probably other passages popped into your brain. Here's a couple that may have popped into your brain. They, they didn't mind as I studied this week. Joel 3.18 says something very similar. It says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and the word and the water the valley of Shittim. Sounds very similar, does it not? Another prophet, Zechariah 14, 8 through 9, 
On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. And it shall continue in summer and as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The prophets were consumed with this thing. The prophets were constantly trying to tell the exiles, there's something greater coming. It's going to be something far greater than what you've known or have known. It's going, it's going to eclipse any of your ideas of temple and Jerusalem and land and inheritance. It's something far greater than, than you can even conceive of. Now, all the foundations of these prophets' thoughts were certainly driven by something else. How they understood creation. Genesis 2. It drives us back to Genesis 2. And there, you remember, I won't go there for you this morning, but you can read on your own. We see God plants a man in the midst of the garden. It describes a river that flows out of Eden into the garden and there divides out into four tributaries called the Pishon, the Gihon, and the Tigris and the Euphrates. And the theme of this whole thing is this picture of creation whereby fruitfulness and flourishing are happening in God's creation. This is pre-fall. And man, remember, man's given this responsibility to, to tend to it, to care for it, to be God's ambassadors in it, to all of creation, multiply and fill the earth in it, and all the things that go along with creation mandates that are there. And the theme of this, this, this theme of nourishing water that runs out of creation, which, by the way, what happened? Like the garden shut off. God pushed his people out of the garden because of their sin. And therefore, we've been striving to get back into the garden ever since. And what is the nature and character of the rest of the land? Isn't how many times, even the songs we sing this morning, dry and parched? All of creation and all these things that the, the prophets were obsessed with were about getting us back to the garden. Psalms 46.4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. 40, I'm sorry, 65, Psalm 65, 9 through 13. You visit the earth and you water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide your grain so that so, for so you have prepared it. The water, sorry, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it from with showers, blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks and the valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and they sing together for joy. The psalmists sang songs about creation because that's in the very heart of everything mankind wants. A new creation, a new home, a new place where God's bounty and His flourishing and His power once again rest and reside with unyielding force and power, as we see here in Ezekiel 30, uh, 47. So these prophets are all contemporaries, and they're all saying the same thing, and they're all desiring the same thing, and they're all, and God's given them these pictures. Why? Because this living water is so significant to the Bible. Because how often in the creation is creation, again, as I said before, described as dry and parched. Just a couple of them. 63.1, Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, was there water? Of course there was water. But the picture here is that God has dried up his entire life force from the rest of the earth 
because of sin and until his purposes are completely fulfilled. And when his purposes are completely fulfilled, he will open up the, the, the waterway in ways that you and I will never, could never understand. Or Psalm 107, 35, he changes a, a wilderness into a pool of water and a dry land into springs of water. Isn't this what Paul talks about in Romans 8? When he talks about creation, the future glory, for I consider, he says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, sin, death, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, who, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation was, has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. All creation has longed for this. And not only in creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. So as Christians, we know this. We have received the first fruits of the Spirit that dwells inside us because of Christ and He's now returned and the Spirit comes and fills God's people up. But we are still not home yet, are we not? And we long with groaning, two groanings for words. And we know that later on Paul talks about the fact that he gives groanings, he, gives, he spirit prays for us as we need for Him to pray for us in this mediated time right now. And so we know that there's a salvation we're experiencing right now with all the glory there is to it, but there's also a much more to come. This is not it. This is not the finished, this is not the final word. No, Ezekiel's talking about the final word here in, in 47 and 48. See, Ezekiel's looking forward to that messianic fulfillment of the promises of a forever home for God's people where God will quench the thirst of his sons and daughters forever. Notice the living water, as we see in this passage. I said it just momentarily ago, if you just go back and look. There it says, uh, the man went out east of the measuring line, there in verse 3. He measured off the third mile, and we could walk through it. It's up to our ankles. And notice it jumps down a little further. It's up to my knees. Go down a little further in verse 5, or verse, in the first four, it's up to his waist. And then eventually it's become so vast that he can't even swim across it. It's, it's dangerous. And that's the thing about God's glory and his goodness is and his blessing. It's, it's so powerful that it's even dangerous to us at times. And so this picture is a messianic picture of that final home. And it's this water that's beginning to drip out of the temple and flow out east and westward and all around into the tributaries all around it. And it goes out and about and it's refreshing the world. The picture of a restored Eden. It's at the center of all creation. It's the center of where all God's people live around Eden again way the world was designed to be, to have the king at the center of the creation. Yes? The sanctuary at the center of creation. See, Eden was a sanctuary of God's presence, but God's people couldn't reside there anymore because of sin. But now the sanctuary is at the center of creation, and now they have unmitigated access in and out. And if you go to the end of, first, of chapter 48, and it, says, it describes all the gates around the city, and it's a picture of the fact that these people come in now, these gates from the peoples who are living in the lands around it, and they have unrestricted access to the Lord of life forever and ever. Does this make sense? But it, didn't, it doesn't just start all at once. In fact, friends, brothers and sisters, it's already started. 
This is exactly what John picks up. But there's no doubt that if you read John in light of Ezekiel, you understand John's picking up on the ideas of this water of life that is now beginning to trickle out into the world through Jesus and then through his church. And then one day when Jesus returns, it just gushes for us. John 7, 37 through 39 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink, he says. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this living water is our access right now through the person and work of Jesus and what he's accomplished. But notice what he's talking about. John clarifies. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so those who believe in Jesus get the Spirit in the living waters. We get a taste of the living waters right now as we wait for His second return. That's the work of the Spirit in our life. But it's not just looking at just when Jesus' first advent, as we, we tend to focus on. But again, John talks about it in the, his book of Revelation 22, 1-5. through 5. He says it looks at a, the fulfillment of the fullness of this advent to come in when Jesus returns. It says, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding the fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were the, for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and His servants will, be, will worship Him. They will see his face. Again, gates in and out, right? Unmitigated access to our God. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now the question that we want to have as we think about this text as we've just had, is what does this mean for us? What can you and I expect of that day, that eternal state, or you might use the word glorified state, or that state of glorification? Some of us, we don't think about it often because we're enamored right now in our sanctification, we're enamored right now, but I mean, friends, God has given this great train, this great chain of salvation, right, of Election, a predestination, election, and, and, and regeneration, and all and so forth, all the way down through conversion into justification, down through uh, sanctification, and into glorification. It gives us this great chain, and you can't disconnect the chain from one another. Like, friends, if we want to grow in our sanctification, should we not then think and consider well and take great joy in that future glorification that is to come? And so that's what I want to do for these next few minutes. What is glorification? Is glorification is, as um, some might say, um, it is that final mighty act of God in salvation. It's when God puts the final stamp. It's the final, you know, chinking the chain, right? Chinking the chain of God's plan of redemption. And it will occur at Christ's return. And so glorification is both the re-embodiment of believers who have died and have existed without their bodies in this intermediate state, and our bodies will be raised from the dead and transformed. And two, for those who are still alive, it will be that instantaneous change in the bodies of believers on earth, and their current bodies are immediately transformed 
in both cases, the, body, the glorified bodies are imperishable, it says in the Bible. I'll, again, you can read this and find these on your own. Neither will they wear out, nor will they ever get sick again. Praise be to Jesus. They will be glorious bodies. <laughs> Amanda says it this way. She can't wait to get her shiny new self again one day. Right? It's beautiful. It's radiant. What it'll be like, I don't know. Will it be your 25-year-old self? I don't know. Don't ask me that. I don't know. All right? The body doesn't tell you that. I know some of us are like thinking about that like, picture where you're like, you looked your best. Like, I don't know. Take it up with Jesus. Okay? I don't know. Our bodies will be powerful. Not, not, not superhuman, but full of strength. They'll be spiritual. Utterly consumed with the Spirit of God. They will be resurrected. They will be whole. And the question that you and I need to think about when we think about that glorified state in the future is how is it shaping your hope right now? I mean, I've asked these questions of myself this past week because I don't oftentimes think that eschatological things are that relevant, but that's not true, is it? If you don't have a hope of something in the future, then, then, then what are you living for? If you don't have something that you're aiming towards, what's your, what's your hope? What, what, what's the purpose? Have, have you and I found the deep joy, I guess is what I'm trying to ask, the deep joy and peace and power for obedience that comes as we exult in the hope of our glory of God, Romans 5.2? Or could a joyful hope in God be the solution, perhaps, to the problems that you and I face in our daily lives, things like spiritual depressions or a lack of zeal for spiritual things or worldly-mindedness? We struggle with these things probably because we don't have our hope like just entranced for that future glory. How often do we know that we should be looking forward to heaven with a greater desire, but we just don't know much about what God has in store for us, so we just don't look? And I don't think it's too light of a thing to say. That's a problem, right? It's a problem. We have so much wonderful truth written in the Scriptures and we don't take hold of it as God's people. We have either, one, forgotten what we've been taught, or two, maybe we were never taught it or maybe had never learned the great things God has in store for us. If you don't know very much about the good things God has in store for you, it doesn't seem like you will be able to have very much hope for the present things, yes? So then what does our glorification involve? I have three things and then we'll be done. Our glorification, to be rightly understood, I mentioned it quickly a minute ago, our glorification is coming when Christ returns. However you write up the sequence of events for ecclesiology, I mean for eschatology, I don't care, but at the end of the day when Christ returns, you and I will get a glorified resurrected body. This resurrection of our body will occur when Christ returns. And we know this from Paul when he explains to us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. 
For the Lord, he says, himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And, the, and, and then we who are alive or remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. When Christ returns, it's finished. All the pain and sorrow and the grief that we share in this world because of residing sin is done. The twinkling of an eye. Magog and Gog and Magog are done. The reign of sin is dead forever and ever when Jesus returns. And that glorified body, that resurrected body, We'll be reunited together with that body, with our souls, and we will live with Jesus and forever. Two, not only is our glorification coming when Jesus returns, but again, again, another note about the glorified bodies that we will receive. We will receive glorified bodies, right? I love Gerald Bray has a great quote on this. He says, the glorification of the Christian is that we shall share in God's glory when we are in our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and new earth, experiencing deeper fellowship with God and not being at risk of falling away into sin. God's glory finally being all in all. So much truth there. In other words, our bodies will one day be raised Christianity does not teach in the immortality of the soul by itself the belief that our bodies are like prisons and thus death is a great blessing to liberate us from the prisons that have, that have, that have, that have, that have enslaved our souls. Rather, Christianity teaches that the resurrection of the body is that, as the Apostle Creed says, we believe in the resurrection of the body. Our bodies are not prisons but are part of who we are of of course our souls are forever, right? They are eternal, but they will live forever in these glorified bodies, not apart from them. Again, there's this, there's this mediated zone, intermediate state between the time we might leave this earth now until Jesus returns, where we are living and we're in the presence of God without a body as our body is in the grave. But there will be a day when Jesus returns and that will change and we will be gloriously put back with our bodies and we will live forever and ever with him. And what will our bodies be like? Again, I just giving you guys hope of that body that you're longing to get back. All right? The Bible teaches that our bodies will be like Christ. Not like the instructor in the video. Your body will be like Christ. And that's enough. Our bodies will be like Christ. We fall into this vague notion sometimes that, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Our bodies will be physical, just like Jesus will be physical, and we will be in the same body that we had on earth, but it will be transformed gloriously into the image of Jesus. I mean, we'll be recognized. I don't mean like we're going to look like Jesus. I'm just saying the fact is we're going to get the glory of Jesus in that new body. It'll be like Christ. Philippians 3, 20, 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. That's Philippians 3, 20 through 21. We'll get bodies like Jesus. Physical, empowered, full, full of spirit. 
You know, just think about what we just learned in that passage. Christ has a body for eternity. Like sometimes I think we think, well, some, you would fall into this vague notion that Christ stopped being human when he ascended into heaven. That's not true. Actually, he will remain human in his human state. He will be the, the, the God-man forever, right? He is fully man and fully God. That's what he will be, and he will remain human and in his body forever. And this verse speaks of the body of Christ's glory, does it not? Second, it also tells us to recognize that Christ is already glorified, that he, when he comes, he is already glorified now in that body with, as he stands next to his Father in heaven, at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Third, you and I are presently not glorified. I don't think any of us are questioning that right now, are we? All right, but we're not. And so, friends, we wait on that glorified body, and, and, and it's not up to you to, to make the body glorified yourself. Jesus is going to take care of that just as well himself. Thank you very much. And when Christ returns in his glory, he, we will be glorified with him. And then lastly, you see in this passage, that this glorification consists of our present bodies being transformed into the likeness of Christ's glorious body. In other words... We would be given bodies like Christ. As I've said already, guys, it's not about the instructor. It's not about anything other than Jesus is enough for you. He's enough for me. 1 Corinthians 15, And just as we have been born the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Amen? Then last, we'll be glorified when Christ returns. We will get glorified bodies. Last, we will dwell in a glorified creation. Since it is true that our bodies will be raised physically, then the new creation also will be raised physically. It will be a real place. It's not a place. Now, it's not going to be a renovated version of what we have here. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. I believe that with all my heart. Oftentimes we think of eternal life in heaven as existing in some spiritual realm forever. But that's not the whole truth, is it? Eternity actually is, will involve the physical creation as well as a spiritual realm. And they will live seamlessly for eternity. Where now the spiritual realm and the physical realm have been broken by sin, we will live seamlessly in the spiritual realm in a physical creation forever and ever. Again, thinking back to what Paul has said in different places here, Paul teaches in Romans 8, 20 through 23, where he says this, creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It doesn't say that creation itself will be disposed of and we'll just live in some nebulous spiritual realm, but they, that the very chains that have locked down creation forever, they will be loosed from those chains. This creation will be loosed from these chains. Or Revelation 21.1 says that a new heaven and a new earth. This, passage, this next verse seems to indicate that the eternal state where there will be a joining of heaven and earth for it speaks of a city of a new Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven to the earth, out of the heavens into the earth. And it says that God himself will dwell among his people in that new Jerusalem forever. That's the place we're going to live. Can you imagine what it will be like to live forever and ever with Christ, not only having access to heaven, but to be, have a renewed physical universe as well? That the universe is huge. Perhaps we'll be given the opportunity to explore it to its furthest depths in that new creation. What a glorious thing that will be one day, amen? 
And, and again, I said earlier, this entire community will be a community of worship. But it won't be just singing in choirs. It'll be robust, glory-driven activity. It'll be a hustling and bustling society all for the glory of God. What Eden was intended to be. Eden was meant to feed the garden. Remember the four tributaries that went out and made the garden flourish. That's the same idea. We will live with glory. We will engage in glorified living. We won't be one of those perpetual hymn sings. We will participate in a heavenly society in that new Eden. All our activity and cultivation will be different, though. It will center on the glory of God where we have access to Him forever and ever. And that's the picture we receive in 47, 13 through the end of 48 in Ezekiel. And let's finish up. Christian, you're to be, and I am to be, a people of great hope. Do we have that hope? Are we clinging to that hope? Psalm 45 5 says, hope in God. Do you have that? Are you, can you say that with the psalmist? Or that in Titus 3.17, that we have a hope of eternal life, that our hope is not just a present hope, but it's a future-oriented hope? Or rather, this, that our hope gives us, a kind of hope that gives us stability because it's not a mere wish about a future? That's not what you're doing. It's not a mere wish, but it's a strong confidence in that future. Hebrews 6.19 says the hope we have as an anchor of our soul, a hope both true and steadfast. Is that where you are this morning, brothers and sisters? And if it's not, can I just kindly ask you as you sit here and prepare for the Lord's table to, 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 beg, to stand before the Lord and, and pray before the Lord and ask Him to give you this confidence once again, to renew your confidence in this once again. See, our hope should bring us great joy because it's not just a confident expectation in the future, but it's a confident expectation of good things to come in the future. Two verses and we're done. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. 1 Peter 1.13. Fix your hope completely on the grace that is to be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. It means His second coming. And two... Hope, our hope of these good things comes in Christ alone, as we see in Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen.